I love to co-create. So when I produce things, it should always be an invitation to join in and to contribute rather than me just sharing something in, in one direction. This is Tai Yepta and welcome to Chapters of My Life podcast. So what is Chapters of My Life podcast? First of all, I want you to imagine your past life. Right, where should I start? I'm Daniel Ludwig, trainer and leadership coach by profession, and I'm always fascinated to look back in life and turn your life stories in form of a book for other generations to learn from, but also for yourself, a self-reflection and to gain new life energy. It's a challenge itself, and frankly, not everyone has thought of this. As we always think, when we get older, we should write our own life book. But in fact, we have so many experiences ready to share with others, achievements, failures to learn from, positive and negative life transitions, which in the end lead to the person we are today. This Chapters of My Life podcast is an inspiring collection of life transitions packed into a podcast audio book format, capturing the willpower and belief of people during important life-changing decisions. This episode is truly all about co-creating change for organizations and individuals. What a pleasure to have Yip on this 30th Chapters of My Life podcast episode. Yip is a certified mindfulness trainer, executive coach, VC and founders advisor, and the author of the book Beautiful Brains Change Tomorrow Today. A honest conversation with change makers. She calls herself a social impact investor and social entrepreneur to facilitate the co-creation of services that benefits individuals, society and nature. So in a nutshell, a real multi-social caring talent. I met her through the Mindfulness Network at Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute. From the very beginning, I saw that she cares highly about co-creating customized learning journeys for organizations and individuals who are on the same similar mission. She chooses a very interesting life book title, Coconut Half Ice, together with five life chapters in our conversation. You can feel throughout the talk her belief that it starts with ourselves first before we can understand others. We talked about growing up in Germany as a Vietnamese child and following the revolutions in footsteps as a teenager. In everything she does, she truly believes that everything happens as it is supposed to happen in life. In this podcast, we also talked about her initial dream of becoming a diplomat and what she learned from her work at her former workplace McKinsey. Her new additional interest field is all around mindful blockchain. Yes, the combination to use blockchain and token economy to create positive change in a global economy. With all this said, let's start this truly co-creating chapters of my life, episode 30s, called Coconut Have Ice. Enjoy. So, yeah, thank you so much for having taken the time as well on a Friday afternoon, late afternoon <laughs> in Munich. <laughs> thank you, Daniel, for thank, inviting me. Thank you. So, um, yep, I know you for a couple of months now, and after also um, you introduced me to your book, um, The Beautiful Brains Change Tomorrow. Today, honest conversation with change makers leading heartful ventures to transform business and society. In the one of the very first pages, you, you wrote, um, 
to those who seek to find inner peace and shine their beauty to the world. Have you found people who got inspired to find inner peace through your book? That's a very interesting question. So I, I have actually received a number of letters, actually, even handwritten ones from other countries mm. that people shared with me when they read the book and they said it touched their lives. But I don't think anybody has mentioned they found inner peace through reading the book. Many people have written to me that it's quite inspirational. Um, it gives them hope. It gives them courage to try their own things. It helps them reflect on their own life. But yeah, I haven't reached that inner peace. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe many found inner peace but not have shared that. It's actually, mm. you're the first person to refer it back to, to the forward. Yeah, I had actually totally forgotten about it myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, I realized um, when, I, when the very first pages and I, you know, because the book, which I also mentioned in the intro, is all about the conversations with really change makers. I was always wondering, what is the life journey from Yip, for example? What's actually the story about her? About you in that sense, you know, because you interviewed so many change makers as well. What about your life? What yeah. about your journey? How did you came to that point that you got so inspired about, you know, change makers, about social entrepreneurship, about all the topics we're going to discuss later? And and at that at that point, when I was reading your book, I was, I was wondering what could be your life book look like yeah. you know what would be on the front cover and so on so that's actually the topic what i want to discuss now how could be your book look like when you want to write your own book and um you've been here in, in munich for a couple of years already yes. do you have a favorite book shop you go to a bookshop yes do you have okay. a favorite one i actually to? have to admit i always order books on amazon <laughs> that's why my book is also published on amazon <laughs> okay yeah on Amazon, let's say Amazon, um, what, where would you, when you write a book yeah. about yourself, in what section on Amazon, for example, would you place your life book? In the sections of autobiographies, I guess. Yeah? Yeah. An autobiography. Yeah. You know, ever since I was a kid, I was inspired by reading autobiographies. I remember I read many different ones. And I always thought, oh, it would be so cool to meet these people in real life, but many of them had not been alive anymore <laughs> by the time I read their books. Mm -hmm. So it's biographic reading is, has been a source of knowledge to me ever since I was young. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think, you know, I haven't really thought about writing my own biography. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was thinking about writing my father's biography, for example, okay. or writing my own biography, but um, inserting different um, bits and pieces of my parents' history, because that is also quite interesting. They had a lot of journeys themselves and migrating mm -hmm. from Vietnam to Germany. So, yeah, and, and it's always fun to, to hear and learn how people f see different things. Yes. The contrast. So you mentioned that you were very inspired when you were young to read other autobiographies. You yes. got inspired. Do you remember specific moments where you say you went, you got a present for a book or something, or you 
moments where you were reading uh, safe location you were in the park you were reading autobiographies no I yeah. read I read everywhere so yeah. in kindergarten I actually even without being able to read <laughs> I was already a fan of reading there is a picture of me I don't know maybe my father has it where I'm holding a book and it's upside down but I'm just reading it so you know there has been some fascination with books and um, to the or the, at the expense of drawing or painting so in kindergarten I would never go out and play with the other kids or I would not go into the drawing corner to to draw something so my my level of drawing or painting is probably kindergarten level <laughs> so, <laughs> but I inve invested all my time in trying to read books have others read to me my parents would read books to us before we um, before um, we go to sleep Vietnamese books and so on so it's always been around and I think this sounds maybe a bit geeky but probably it's it's very true that by the age of 12 or 13 I had finished the end I had read probably every single book in the children's and teenage library in our local library okay. so <laughs> I've been a bit geeky in that I just consumed a lot of data from from reading nice so you mentioned that Your book can be found in the autobiography section on Amazon or in a bookshop. Yes. Um, when I pick your book, what would I see on the cover? Well, probably a painting that any of my friends would have drawn. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. So like an illustration, a picture? Illustration or anything. From your friends? Yeah, maybe a little girl on, okay. on the front cover. I, I don't know, but typically I, my way of doing things is just asking my friends to contribute and typically I would ask any friend who knows how to draw or paint or illustrate better than me yeah. to help me and give them also a stage and a space to be part of my work. I remember in your book also, um, Beautiful Brains, on the title it said, Yep, and Friends. Yeah. It's the very same idea behind you, trying to include your friends as well, by creating that yeah. product or that book in that sense. It's, in a way, you know, I think relationships can grow in depth when you have a common, a common mission, when you're on a common mission, mm -hmm. right? So that's, that's one part to it. And the second part to it is um, I offer my friendship to everybody in the world so typically when I call like somebody a friend I do mean it because I have no reason to not offer friendship mm -hmm. to another person and so yeah in the beginning I wanted to write and co-creators but I thought this is not it everybody who participated in my book and gave their lifetime and their efforts and their generous sharing to me is for sure anybody who I would offer my friendship to. Nice, very nice. I think this is also kind of an expression of who you are. You're trying to include others as well, to co-create literally products, ideas. It's kind of a team as well, or as a, as a kind of community. Yeah, effort. it's very boring to do things <laughs> by yourself. <laughs> so, um, illustration from maybe a little girl, you said, from the, from the front cover. Um, 
you know, usually on the first pages, when you open the book, there's kind of um, a foreword or kind of a, a thank you note. Let's say a thank you note as well. Who would you thank you most in your life? For sure, my parents. And then I have a lot of different people who I should pay gratitude to. I, I have been a very lucky person in the sense that I've met many mentors, many people who were a bit more life experienced than me, mm -hmm. who were experts in their own fields and who would contribute to, to helping me understand the world in a better way, in a, in a more thorough way, maybe, and help guide my journey. And so there would be a very long list. So I think I would write thank you to anybody who have helped, who has helped me become who I am today. And I don't think I would list names and so on. I think mm. I'm not a big fan of listing, uh, you know. Every single person, yeah. And probably I would forget many exactly. of them. Yeah. yeah. It's good that it's, you know, you're trying to not um, leave anyone out as well. Trying to include everyone for kind of a summary word as well. I do also think that each person that I meet contributes to my life experience. Mm -hmm. So I'm not also a big fan of, you know, ranking who has had the biggest impact on my life. I think it's kind of a destructive um, way to, 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 to my own well-being. Yeah, to look and see this person had contributed more, this person had contributed less, and we're yes. getting into this kind of a race of comparing. Mm -hmm. Because I don't like to be compared against others. I just want to be perceived as deep. <laughs> <laughs> so I try not to do that with others. And obviously, sometimes it just happens automatically, and sometimes you do have to make decisions and so on. But but where where I can, I try to not engage in these kinds of behaviors. Mm -hmm. And you say you don't want to be compared. That also means that you appreciate being unique as well, or you're trying to tell others as well not to be a copycat for others, right? That everyone should find their own individual way. Well, everybody has their own individual yes. ways already anyway, and we yeah. should, in my view, as society, um, create systems or create um, an atmosphere where people can be themselves without compromising and trying to fit into society. Mm -hmm. It's actually very difficult nowadays, as I can see that often with young people, you know, trying to copy someone else, being like, you know, an idol and then trying to copy that. And it, what you say, it's very true, but it's very difficult also for young people, you know, who are trying to find kind of a role model. And then they're trying to be like that, but they keep forgetting their own identity. Well, I think it's you need uh, both, though. You do need to, not you need to, some people can do without, but I mm -hmm. learn best when I copy others. Yeah. Just to understand why somebody does something, it's very helpful to just do what they do and yes. <laughs> see how <laughs> it resonates with me. And then maybe I can go back to this person and say, I don't understand what makes you do what you're doing. I try to do it too, but somehow it's not working out. Yes. And then all of a sudden, maybe sometimes it's you, you tried to copy, but you did it wrong. So you missed an essential kind of activity or something, huh. an ingredient. So the entire process didn't work. Or you realize on the way that this is not your style, but you know then that you tried it. 
-hmm. So you don't need to go back and always attach to this notion of, oh, what if, what if, right? Because you've already done it. You've done your best. You also spoke to the person if, if possible and had the process verified. And then you come back and you make a sound decision, an mm -hmm. informed decision. And I think this is helpful. And yeah, by, by copying, you learn. Like I think children learn by that. They just copy adults how they walk, how they yeah. speak. It's, <laughs> so it's, it's quite human. Very true, especially when you have um, uh, brother or sisters, if you're trying to copy them anyway, or if you have an older sister, brother. Yeah, always trying to copy them when you were young. Um, when I... Yeah, when I now, you know, look into your book, into a table of content, and I see the very first kind of chapters, what would I read in the first chapter in your life book? What do you want to tell the readers in your first chapter? <laughs> Something, I think, I, that is the way I read books, and I would encourage everybody to do that too. Just open the book somewhere and read into it. So okay. I would not want my book um, to need to follow a certain... Justin. Yeah, chronologic okay. order or something. So it should be in itself, every chapter should in itself be a self-sustaining chapter. Uh -huh. So... I think I would invite people just to explore um, explore playful reading and not like to let go of this wish to um, to to consume and understand and read all the information in some certain order and structure but rather it's okay if you want to do that but it's also okay if you just want to play around a little bit and I'll make sure I write it in a way that it's okay for you to play around. Interesting. So that aspect of not, that it's not chronological in that sense, it's also kind of a way to give the readers an opportunity to start or pick any chapter at any yeah. time. Yeah. Maybe without, I would Without the force. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I would even love to have, you know, um, a, like a, U-Bahn map, like for the metro, a map and with different stations. Okay. And then people can just, according to their current mood or their current need, they can just pick their destination and then just go to that page and see what awaits them. So your book is also kind of a reference book, right? I mean, uh, kind of a real-life mood Ideally. chapter, you know, pick on the U-Bahn map, underground map your current mood and then go to chapter X, Y, Z. Maybe, ideally. Ideally, uh, it's also structured <laughs> in a way that people can have a little self-reflection quiz first. And then, you know, I want things to be in interaction always because I love to co-create. So when I produce things, it should always be an invitation to join in and to contribute rather than me just sharing something in in one direction yeah so the co-creation aspect is also a way for you or indirectly not just to involve i mean what you mentioned in the beginning not just involve friends and others to co-create the cover for example but also to let the audience or the listeners or the readers but sorry the readers and the book co-create in the moment right ideally yeah. yes but <laughs> <laughs> So when you, I love that idea actually, it's a very, very interesting idea when you say it's kind of a, 
underground map or mood map. What moods do you want to cover in your book? Any type of moods what that there are. What would you say are the important, most important moods you want to cover in your book? Definitely for sure. You know, I think if I were to really strategize on the book, yeah. I would just get out a mood map and look at the different um, spectrums and the different clusters. So I need to do some psychological research and then see if I can play all the um, if I can play all the different moods, mm -hmm. strings, if you were to say, yes, like yes, you yes. play an instrument. Yes, yes, yes. Right? And also on that, um, on that preparation piece, probably I would discover that some moods are not so much um, addressed in my own life journey so far. Mm -hmm. So I would need to look deeper into that. Okay. So I do think, but I think in general, everybody has lived through all the different moods throughout their entire lifetime. Typically you have, I don't know if that is only valid <laughs> for women and so on. Um, for everyone, you yeah. Have it, yeah, yeah. All of this within the day could happen sometimes, no? But it also comes down to like being aware of the mood, you know, sometimes yeah. you might be depressed or might be in a good mood, but you might can't, or you cannot express it or you might not be aware of that, you know, because you're in your mind in that, you know, when you overthink, in a certain situation, you're not even aware that you are in this kind of cycle yeah. and this, let's say, depressive mood or whatever. Yeah. Yes, you know, sometimes you're not aware of that. Um, it's also for many more, you know, it's also hard to express the mood, you know, put it into words. It's also difficult. That's yeah. totally true. And it's typically, it's much more difficult to put something into words, but there's ways to, you know, pick a color. Yeah. yeah. Describe a weather. Yes. Um, pick a sound. Pick an animal. Yeah. Their behaviors. Yeah. So there's a lot of playful interactions to help people touch into their emotions, their feelings, mm -hmm. and then turn it into words at a later stage. Mm -hmm. And you say that on the very first chapter, it's not about chrono chronological order. It's not about, you know, the yep young age till today it's more about chapters match towards moods what mood would you cover in, fir in the first chapter then well i wouldn't say actually that it's not a chronological my invitation is rather mm -hmm. i would write the book in chronological order okay. because it doesn't make sense to you know you do have to provide structure yes yes yeah yes yeah but the invitation is within that structure Pick how you want to take the journey. I see. Okay. So, you know, it's not about dissolving the chronological disorder. I, mm -hmm. I like structure very much <laughs> because <laughs> it helps to navigate through, through an experience. Mm -hmm. and so it's very, and, and time and chronolo chronology, I don't know how to Chronolo say in English. I was struggling with that <laughs> chronological order. <laughs> it, it's quite yeah. helpful because you know you start when the child is born and you go until the day of today. Mm -hmm. So that's helpful. Why should we just completely dissolve that? Mm -hmm. But the invitation in the forward is you don't have to read from page 5 to page 100. You can start at page 25 if you feel like that, if you feel like this is currently what is needed um, for you. 
So you can do that. And every chapter, if you were to divide it by age brackets, in, in my life, for example, would still contain probably all the different moods. But mm -hmm. me as the author, I would probably put different um, accent highlights mm -hmm. throughout the different things so that in the end I have a holistic composition. Yes. So when you said you would still write in a chronological order, yeah. what would I see then in the first chapter? Ah. Would you write about your childhood? Would you write about your teenage age? No, I would for sure write about, I would start from being born, yeah, from the day I was born, and maybe even start by introducing my parents' lives. So maybe even my age, like my birth date minus 20 years or something. Uh -huh. Okay. Yeah. So how were, how, how, what can I read in that first chapter about your childhood and, or about your time when you were being a baby? How were, how were you when you were a baby? How were you when you were a child? Were you very curious as of today, similar? Or were you like, um, as you said, like you were very interested in reading, you're trying to read everything, you consume a lot of information. Were you like this? Or do you remember your parents told you? Yes, that of you course. you were trying to consume information everywhere? Yeah, I did, one, actually. One, two, three, and so, yeah. I, I think I was quite an annoying kid because I would always ask everybody many questions. I was the first out of four children. And my parents really put a lot of dedication into raising four children. And my mother would always make beautiful cakes for our birthdays. My father would, <laughs> every day when, when he was at work, he would call back home for lunchtime and speak to each of us. And he would always ask us, you know, how was your day? What did you do in school? How... Um, what did you eat and so on and when he came home from work he would come to us and sometimes he would um, tickle our bellies you know and then he would play the the magician and he would say huh let me guess what you had for lunch and then he would listen try to listen to our stomachs and then guess and of course like whoa He's so smart and so wise. How did he know what we ate? And obviously, <laughs> as a child, like, you totally forget that you told him what you ate during lunch. <laughs> But just these kinds of interventions. We had a very fun childhood. Um, it's always fun to be with other siblings in more or less your age. Mm -hmm. We had some friends, the neighbor friends that would come in. We lived in a, in a small village. It was very German. I remember... When I went to kindergarten, I didn't speak German. So the okay. first word I consciously remember, um, German word that I learned, was Gießkanne. Gießkanne. And That's it was green. Difficult word. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember. Um, yeah, and then we were Vietnamese. We did not have a lot of money because like, it was just tough. My parents just had come to Germany a few years earlier before they had us. And so we always had to bootstrap a lot. So I don't remember buying many books. I think we had books like Harry Potter or something. Mm -hmm. But all the other books that I read, they were from the library. And we would always share and share clothes and get clothes from other and um, from friends. And yeah, a lot of Vietnamese communities when I grew up. So we were very embedded in the Vietnamese community. Mm -hmm. And then I also remember how how in kindergarten 
they taught us German, right? Because uh, we didn't speak German. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and I loved it because there was one woman who would come to kindergarten every, I think, twice a week or maybe once every two weeks. So I don't mm -hmm. recall for sure. But then it was me and my brother and then lots of other migrant kids. So Italian kids and Portuguese kids and so on. None of them really spoke German. So we had extra German classes and it was playful. And when we did things right, we would receive little chocolates and so on. Really cool <laughs> things that my family would never buy. Yes. And it was really a nice incentive for us to come to extra like extracurricular kindergarten German classes and it was financed by the kindergarten. Mm -hmm. So I, I remember, I think that's how I learned German very, very well. And not because somebody else taught it to me in school or not because mm -hmm. my parents taught it to me, but somehow we were lucky that in our kindergarten there was this teacher who, who, who would come and have extra time with us and yes. help us um, integrate into German society. I think also that dedicated time, as you say, kind of gave you that environment to feel welcome or feel home as well yes. in, in that new language which you didn't spoke at that time. Yeah, no, not at all. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it, it was really supportive yes. ecosystem in already in the kindergarten and yes. I remember that. So I feel very grateful and you know, um, I always love to give back in a way because I saw how much impact it had. Just this little intervention with this German teacher yes. would maybe had, you know, I don't know what would have happened had I not learned um, German so early. Mm -hmm. and had not somebody dedicated their extra time to help us learn and had not somebody put up the financial means mm -hmm. to make this possible because I don't think my parents would have paid for this. Okay, yeah. yeah. You said that that took place in the kindergarten. At that time, did you realize, because you grew up then in Germany, did yeah. you realize that your origin heritage comes from a different nationality? Yeah, 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 and totally. you lived in a country in the world where everything is slightly different to your heritage? Yes and no. At that age, yeah. I think I did, but I also think, <laughs> I don't know, hopefully my family members don't listen. I think, <laughs> you know, in, in general, within the migrant community, people are, I, I, I don't know if saying racist would not maybe not be the right word, um, but people are very well articulated about differences in nationalities. It's not like mm. migrants are discriminated against only by you know the the local population, but I think it goes the other way around as well. And so I knew I was not German, but I didn't feel discriminated against, but maybe also because um, it was considered something fun, you know, it was fun being a minority. It was cool because we had extra classes and we would receive gummy bears. And extra treatment. Yeah, yeah. extra treatment. Yeah. So it didn't feel like it was a disadvantage mm -hmm. at, at that early time. Yeah. Um, the years after from the kindergarten, the first years in school, how did you experience that? When we went to school, I think I loved school. I loved to learn how to read and write. Mm -hmm. I got really into that in the way I think first or second grade. I won a prize 
a local or regional prize for reading. So my job was, you know, the competition was about reading out books. And it, it was now, in hindsight, when I think about it, it's quite fascinating because <laughs> I was six or seven. And like I told you, I yes, only yes. learned German when I was three years old. Yes. And then I won kind of regional competitions. So I think that mirrors very much my dedication or my passion or fascination with language. Mm -hmm. And I also learned, I also remember we learned to play piano. I play piano, my brother learned the guitar, like very much in a way, you know, stereotypical Asian families raise their children. <laughs> Everybody has to do some one sports. We went to swimming, I think. Yeah, I was in a okay. swimming club. Okay. And then we went to swimming competitions and um, music competitions and a lot of learning and studying. And then on top of that, learning Vietnamese. My mother was very um, fond of us learning how to read and write. Mm -hmm. Her teaching methods were maybe not the most fun. <laughs> but in the end, I think it's thanks to her dedication that I learned how to read and write Vietnamese. Yes, interesting. Someone wrote about you, maybe you remember him, um, what's his name? Um, he said, I have experienced her as a leader who makes wise use of her strong analytical skills, playful creativity and love for the human being. It's from Ralph Schneider Alliance Group. Yeah. Um, and he said, I mean, three parts, uh, the strong analytical skills, playful creativity and love for the human being at, the, at kindergarten school at that young age. Did you have already this kind of creative, kind of playful mindset? That analytical? Maybe, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> I love to create situations. I would love, I would often create plays. And then everybody had a role. And people would play in my, in my play that I created. <laughs> so you, you're setting the stage. You're setting the stage and you, you distribute the roles, more or less. Yes. And okay. of course, there were conflicts because my younger siblings would sometimes say, no, we don't want to do that. And then we would have a fight. <laughs> and I think I love to explore um, already when I was a child. But I think it's also driven by, you know, I think I always had a bit of problems connecting to other children because I love to connect with the adult worlds more. Mm -hmm. And I was never that cool kid playing around and climbing the trees and um, playing in the sandbox. And so, I mean, there was this, so I was not completely an isolated kid. And also I had three siblings. So you always have community around you. Um, but I was more always more drawn towards eavesdropping on the adult conversations even when I was in kindergarten so this didn't help with you know tapping into the inner child and all of this so much when I was a child I mm -hmm. think I might even be more playful now that I'm an adult than when I was a child yeah. so it's a bit funny how important for you is uh, keeping especially for adults keeping that kind of young playful character being like a child in yourself how, how important is that for you Uh, or in general, when you say adults should keep be kind of keep that kind of playful, childish behavior, I think it's very um, relevant for your mental health. Yeah. That you have a way to access and to integrate your inner child into mm -hmm. your everyday moment, or ever yes. into every moment. Yeah. Yeah. Going away from that seriousness for the adulthood. 
it's kind of a resource, right? When you mm -hmm. tap into what made you you. Mm -hmm. And when you're a kid, you don't really think about it. Yes. You just are. And as an adult, sometimes we unlearn this. Mm. So it's quite a gift to be able to connect to the inner child again. Mm. And also, I think, looking at, at it from a more, you know, analytical perspective across um, generations, intergenerational dynamics, mm. I think that if adults do not take good care of themselves and can nourish themselves and tap into their um, freshness, they transmit kind of a burden to their own children, to the younger generation, mm. because it's not okay to be fresh and blossoming like a flower when, when, yeah, it's kind of this experience that they transmit that there's nothing fun in life. Why do you act like this and so on? And so we start to constrain the creativity of the young people who are growing up because we don't allow ourselves to tap into it and we set these kind of expectations that this is not okay. Mm. I think it's yeah. also um, quite similar. I mean, years ago I also worked with kids and you could see that with kids, or when you generally work with young, you know, with kids in general, that they still have the dreams, even if they're impossible, whereas with adults, yeah. they might have the dreams, but that quickly, very quickly tell you it's unrealistic. You know, this kind of beforehand, before you try, already making the decision. And that's, I think, it's very fascinating where adults actually can learn from young kids or kids in general, you know, having this kind of open mindset that everything is still possible and it's, um, it's still worth to try rather than initially say, no, it's not possible. You know, still believing in something, even if it's the most craziest idea, still believing in it, I think it's something what the adults can learn from. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And which adult adults actually, you know, keep forgetting over time. That's, that's because that's a, that's a sense of cre creativity, curiosity and everything else. And children are so smart. The moment they feel like their parents are not a hundred percent themselves, then the the child tries to make up for that and be supportive to the parents. Mm -hmm. So what the child does then is losing a little bit of their playfulness because they want to step in and fill a void yes. that parents are leaving. Yes. And so I think it's also not fair for, yes. <laughs> for from parents towards their children that you know that they put this burden and not on purpose, not intentfully, but They, they put children into the position to grow mature faster than the child would have done. Mm. Would it not have the need to compensate for certain behaviors that the parents bring up, certain expectations, and so on? Nice, yeah, that's very true. Um, I'm curious about your the time at school. You said you were very interested in reading and writing. Yes. Can you remember a situation in the very first years of school where you say, that's so typical me, that's so typical me. Well, I was... Or the teachers were annoyed or some other situation where you say, that's so typical me situation in the school, the first years in school. Well, 
I always have some strong <laughs> views. <laughs> and I would, when I was a kid, I was very vocal about all of my views. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think I didn't understand that I had already been hurt and like hurt, listened to. And I would repeat over and over again because people would not show that they had listened and seen and understood what I had said. And so I might have been a little bit of an annoying student. I also would not do homework when I didn't think it made sense. So there were situations where I would tell my teachers, when they asked for my homework, I would tell them, you know, I did it in my head, which was partially true because I had looked at the homework and I had devised, but of course I hadn't written it down. And of course I knew it was not right. I knew that was kind of cheating, but because, yeah, I just didn't feel it made sense. So I would tell them, you know. To write it down to, you know, for someone else. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, I know it's stupid now. Like, you know, nowadays I know it's stupid because in mathematics, for example, it helps to do the same calculations over and over. So you get mm-hmm. a little bit of, um, how do you say, it becomes a, a, a standard and mm-hmm. you don't have to think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. So a little bit of practice helps. Yes. <laughs> but I would not see that as a, as, as a child or as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And in my... In my Abi-Zeitung, so the, the journal that people write it, it, when they graduate, mm-hmm. we were able to leave, like each student had their own profile, and then one of the, <laughs> it was very funny, one of the people wrote into my profile section, one of my friends actually, said, Yip doesn't park her car, she just stops it and leaves it. <laughs> I thought it was like by that moment, by that time I thought it was not so funny but now I think she got my nature so right yeah. I would just like don't when I think some things are not necessary I just don't do them mm-hmm. even when it causes controversies okay and I think this has been something you know that created polarization also in in my friend circle or in, in the student, in the way I attended school, and so on. I see. So you said you were very interested in reading, writing. Um, what leisure activities did you had when you were a teenager? I worked quite a lot. You what? Worked? Worked. Okay. So I was a tutor. Mm-hmm. Because we had... I have a very big hobby, which is traveling. Okay. And we never had a lot of budget. So I knew if I want to fulfill my dreams, I need to monetize some of my activities. So at a very early age, I knew if I want to go on my holiday travels, I need to make money. And so I started very early to think about what is what are the assets that I have. And one asset was I had very good grades. So I thought about how can I teach others and make a little bit of money. I also had a very early age job. I think when I was already like 12 or 13 years old, as soon as the legal age for doing little jobs was um, ready, I was already distributing newspapers. Um, it was very, very badly paid. And in winter times, this is like the toughest jobs you can do because your fingers are frozen. Yeah. And you have to sort these little um, newspapers and put them into every single um, post box, which uh-huh. is quite a, annoying work. Um, so I remember I had a lot of these activities 
teaching others. And then one of my favorite activities, I love music, I love basketball. So I played basketball as a teenager and I loved hip hop underground music. And But what was so fascinating for you for the hip hop? So one, I really love the music, just the beats, and then I love the history about it. You know, hip-hop is not only the rap, mm -hmm. the, the, the poetry, spoken exactly, word. Yeah. It's also the breakdowns, mm -hmm. but then it's also the DJing, the producing. So it's an entire ecosystem, and then it's the graffiti. But I was never so much involved into the mm -hmm. graffiti because, yeah, like I told you, painting and stuff was not so, <laughs> so much um, my area of, of excitement. Mm -hmm. But I was very much into spoken word. Mm -hmm. And it's the entire ecosystem. So it has these different elements. They all feed into each self and there's dams. And then people come together and it's typically the um, underprivileged minorities of society. And they use hip hop as one vehicle to express their emotions, to express their anger, their frustration, their not being okay with situations, with society as is. And at the same time, being caught in, you know, the world and just describing and speaking the world as they see it. And everybody's speaking about how they make, big, make a lot of money and drive the big cars mm -hmm. and wear these gold bracelets and necklaces and so on. And, you know, I, I thought it was just so, mm, yeah, I don't know. I, I thought it was very inspirational that people take the chance to express their views mm -hmm. in a cool way and then there's the movies about it and mm -hmm. there's the cool you know rappers and the yes, gangs yes and i mean the beauty of what you just said with spoken words is also it's kind of a reflection of the speaker's current mood but also kind of a reflection of the society maybe you know totally and you can express your mood and your feelings in that spoken words it's not like just you know reading it or speaking it's just literally an expression of feelings yes by letters and it's really about people who have daily struggles in life it's about an entire group of society that is not being listened to in everyday life and they have their own subculture and i was very fascinated by that yeah so were you part of a spoken word club or an no. open mic or <laughs> a kind of weekly kind of meetup at that time no, but I was very much integrated into mm -hmm. the community. I had friends who were break dancers. Um, I had friends who were DJs. So, and I was a hip hop journalist. So, like you asked about my leisure activities, I was working all the time. But most of my work was always something I really cared about. So, I was a hip hop journalist. I was not paid, but I would write reviews about new albums that would come out and so on and this had two advantages one was i would save on on buying cds because the labels would send them to me mm -hmm. so that was really cool because i anyway didn't have any money the second thing is they would invite me to go to concerts and concerts was something i really could not afford by that age like as a teenager And so I would get the tickets for free. And uh -huh. the cool thing was I did not only get them for free, I was able to go backstage and talk to the, the, the artists. Yes. This was really cool. And the final thing that made it very meaningful to me was that I was able, because I was in this position of being a journalist, I was curating and sharing the stories of the people who I had felt had not been listened to 
who had not had a stage on their own. So I was always screening for, you know, the upcoming, up-and-coming artists. Yes, so you just touched a point, something very interesting. Were you interested at that time also to create, how to say that, create stories for people who were not able to be on site in that case in the stadium or yeah. people will not be able to be at that place so they can experience the same yeah well i was not a famous person either right yeah. so <laughs> <laughs> but i knew that if i give them an interview yeah or if i write a review about their album that would help them or that was my wish my intention obviously i was just a small fish so i was not that very influential but i already knew it's just sometimes you just need one review or you just need one interview one picture and that can help you be discovered and anyway i loved it and i was fascinated by the people's work so it thought it was a win-win right i'm a wise use of my time yes. i get something in return and i can help i can help people build visibility. And you help actually the singers as well to get the word out or to get, you know... Yeah, it's channeling attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can channel attention to any cause that you find noteworthy. And for me by that time, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I found it very cool when people spoke about the violence that was happening in their own ghetto neighborhoods. Yes. I was not, I was very generous overhearing, generously overhearing the destructive parts of it, that degradation of women and, you know, the drugs, the okay. <laughs> all, all these glorification of drug consumption and so on. I, somehow I didn't really engage with that. Now, like, I was like, wow, why would you support these people who are just saying, like, all women are bitches? <laughs> <laughs> um, you say that the, fir the first chapter would start with age zero, literally. Um, till what age? Or till what time would go the first chapter? I think the first chapter would go from zero to 12, because mm -hmm. when I was 12, my mother and my father divorced, and my mother went back to Vietnam. So things changed very rapidly there. I had to take over responsibility being, you know, the, the replacement mother in the household. <laughs> and also I, I had to start earning my money so that I could finance my own travels. And of course, high school is a bit more challenging than in being in the elementary school. So that 12 to maybe 19, that was the cool high school years and my hip hop experience and very cool things happened. And then probably the third chapter would be my student years, of course, because that was a new, completely new chapter again and yes. new life. And then after that, my, the fourth chapter would be my McKinsey years. And then the fifth chapter, maybe, what came after. You know, what came after? <laughs> nice. I'm just going to write down everything right now. So let me just quickly go back to the first chapter and second chapter. And you said the first chapter would go till age 12. Um, how would you call the first chapter? What would I read in the ch uh, table of contents? And I see well, chapter a, one. That's a very cool, um, cool way to look at things. So I would even divide it um, into two chapters, right? One is the first one where I didn't speak German and where I was just a Vietnamese. So that title would something be something like. the Vietnamese child or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the second one was would be called Liberation and Discovering 
um, discovering the the word, discovering literature, anything. And the third chapter would be something like, <laughs> I don't know, following into the footsteps of you know, the the revolution, uh, the revolutionaries. <laughs> the revolution. Yeah, the revolutionary people. In the sense of, like, you know, rappers and <laughs> Malcolm X. I was quite a big fan of Malcolm X or Ulrike Meinhof when I was a teenager. Yeah, at the time, in the, in the, you know, chapter two, um, did you have any wish to become? Like, did you thought, like, at that age, teenage age, did you have any wish to follow a specific profession already in life? No, I don't think no. I ever thought about professions. Yeah. yeah. I was never all into something, something, and yeah, I don't, I don't think I had a big profession. I actually even didn't really choose my profession. <laughs> I didn't even really actively choose my area of studies in the sense other, in the way my other peers had chosen their uh -huh. areas of studies. So you said chapter three would be all about the, the study as well. Yeah, maybe. So what did you study? Business. Business. Global business management. How did you choose that? How, how, how come that you choose that I think subject? it was very opportunistic, maybe. Um, one was in 2006, Mohammed Yunus won the Nobel Prize for his works with the Grameen Bank for microfinancing and microcredits and empowering women or empowering the poor. And I was very inspired by that. By that time I studied my, my focus area in, in high school was business and economy, macroeconomics. So I thought, okay, this would be cool. But then, Honestly, there was nothing else I would have been interested in, and I was not that much interested into business, but international business studies gave me the opportunity to study languages too. So I chose a program where you had to graduate in two separate languages, like English and then French, and I also had a Mandarin, but I forgot everything about it. So that was cool, and in my business course or business undergraduate studies there was an integrated global practicum so i had to go abroad i, I had to travel abroad and um, study somewhere mm -hmm. and come back so this was very cool and the third criteria for choosing this was not because of the topic or something but because there was this opportunity to be um, a student in the first ever cohort of a new study program mm -hmm. And there would only be 50 students. Um, and they promised that by being one of the selected pioneers or test users, you would get good access to professors. Yes. Yeah. And, okay. and this was something that was important to me. I knew already by that time that the only way you know, I would be able to understand how to study, and so nobody in my family had studied before. I was the first. So nobody could support me from, from my family at home and from my family's friends' circles. We only had one person who had studied that was a doctor and then nobody else had studied. So I knew from, from the socio-economic um, group that I came from, there was no support. Mm -hmm. So I thought if I want to thrive 
in this new environment, I would need to find, you know, new supporters. Yes. <laughs> so, so that was, seemed to be like a win-win and it was exciting. It was a bit entrepreneurial mm -hmm. and I, I think I do not regret my decision. You said in the beginning and your wish from chapter one and chapter two were to travel, to explore. Yes. And you had now the opportunity to travel as well. And that's I already had it in my second chapter when I was yeah. a teenager. Yeah. Because the cool thing about being from a refugee diaspora is, you know, it's actually sad, but I, at the same time, it's very beautiful. I had family all over the world and friends. My father had friends all over the world because almost everybody who grew up with them had left the country. So I could travel quite a lot already when I was a teenager and I didn't have to pay for you know, rent or hotel bookings. My father would just send me to different relatives and I would help them operate their store or whatever <laughs> and work my way through getting my meals and housing for free. Yes. So in that way, I had already traveled to the United States a few times, even when I was a teenager, mm -hmm. which was really nice. The, the travel time during your study, but yeah. that was a different experience, right? Because that was also where you were surrounded with... Uh, other like-minded people, right? Or you were actually in, the same, in a different context you traveled, right? Yeah, that's true. Yes and no. Yeah. Because I always have, like I told you, I had to work to get housing and accommodation and so on for free. Yeah. So when I was a teenager and traveled somewhere, I would already always work in some way. Mm -hmm. And during my undergraduate studies, I would also work. So I studied in Washington, D.C., which was nice because by that time I wanted to be a diplomat or an ambassador. Mm -hmm. And so D.C. seemed to be the perfect place to be. And I did an internship there and I was st studying with other friends. Um, so, yeah, it was different, but not so different. But what was really, really different was the study experience because in Germany the way the school curriculum is set up is you have to study all by yourself right and the the professors it's not their task really to make you understand things I mean they lecture and they do research mm -hmm. that's their main focus doing research for the university mm -hmm. in the US the lecturers might not have been top professors in in the research sense not all of them but they were very good facilitators so the focus was on helping students understand how to read the texts and so on to More guide practical people. Side. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes. How to use the knowledge or the, that is in the theory. Mm -hmm. And in Germany that was not the case. I thought, wow, this is a new way to learning. And this gave me a lot of motivation to become more like, you know, the American professors than <laughs> the German professors. So at the time when you were you did study in, in Washington, um, how, how long did you stay in there? Like yeah. five months or something months like this. Yeah. Where else did you study abroad? I studied another time um, in my master's studies in Pittsburgh, which was also another American yes. city. Yes, good friends of mine actually come from Pittsburgh. It so, was very uh, yeah, nice. It's a nice city, yeah. So at the time when you were in the, in the US, um, you said, you know, you, you, you found out about that practical learning aspect as well. Um, but what, what did you learn from the country? Because you, you came from, you know, your heritage from Vietnamese, then you grew up in Germany, you have the German mindset, and then you were in the U.S. How did you experience that time in the U.S. then? 
I loved United States. I still love United States. But it made me realize something um, that I only understood a few years back, that, you know, the freedom comes at some certain expense, and the expense is social inequity. When Washington, D.C., downtown area, you wouldn't really go there by day and by night for sure you would not go there. Same with San Francisco, Los Angeles, any of New York, any of these big cities. Then there are areas where you don't really feel safe by daytime. And it comes because there's a lot of, there's a lack of social structure, support structure. So there's a lot of homeless people and people who are selling drugs, who are buying drugs, who are on drugs. And a lot of this you don't really see in Germany because um, we do have we, we do pay higher taxes, right? And then people get support. And I know that because my family received a lot of support from the government when we were poor. And so there was no, I think, you know, the barrier to move up in, in society, social mobility, I don't know how you call it, um, is much higher in, in Germany than in these countries like the US where people have all the freedom to do what all they want but then what happens when you don't bring up your own strength to, mm -hmm. to um, help your own family then you have all these kinds of problems that you see and this was a big learning that I took away and I think for myself I have come to the conclusion that it's really really valuable or invaluable to have a functioning social system and kind of this fabric fabric that holds everything together. Interesting. Um, you said at that time your wish was to become a diplomat. Yes. <laughs> so you, had, you dreamed of in the UN, etc. So how come you, you worked then, when you said chapter four in McKenzie, how was that switch? Well, first I interned in an agency that was in, in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. Two days a week I worked there for a few months. Mm -hmm. And it was an agency that um, organized roundtables and ambassador meetups. So when the ambassadors come back from, from their missions, they stay in D.C. for a little bit and then they have to report and so on. And this agency had been founded by Eisenhower and was by that time reporting to the State Department, which was um, led by Hillary Clinton mm -hmm. in 2010 or 11. I don't remember. And my job was to help organize these roundtables where all these people would come together and meet with you know, corporate government affairs officials from the big corporations and just speak about topics on how to foster economic growth in, inside the country but also outside of the country. And I realized a lot of the work is just being done by talking. But I was lacking this kind of okay, now we know all the problems and now we go to all these evening events and so on, we speak about it, but what are we actually doing? And I, I'm quite an entrepreneurial person, so I like to do things and I'm not so mm. much into speaking. Mm. So I realized, okay, this is maybe not the right place for me to be as a young person mm -hmm. because all I do is brokering, but brokering by words. Mm -hmm. And this is not what makes me happy. Yes. So I was a bit disillusioned and I joined McKinsey because I thought I can do same like you know same level in in terms of 
um, how do you say, high-level work to mm -hmm. speak with people in, in positions who, who can have decision-making power, but also involve more the business sector because also that was more the area where I felt more home. I know you from the last few months that, since I know you actually, that you're quite interested in, quite involved and passionate, uh, engaged in <coughs> social uh, impact and sustainable yeah. development goals, SDGs. At that time when you were worked in, in the UN as well, uh, did you see, I mean, you dreamed of being, becoming um, a diplomat. Did you grow that sense of being more involved in social entrepreneurship as well? Or in social justice or in yeah it had been actually time. by that time already um, well my my work as a hip-hop journalist was already about social social justice right giving a voice to those who would not be heard and then I was in DC trying to understand how politics work like global politics and multi-stakeholder processes like who needs to be engaged in order to really drive large-scale transformation And then one year after, I went to India and I worked in a microfinance institution and I went to the rural sites of India and assessed the effectiveness of the microcredit programs. So I had already seen micro-entrepreneurship in action mm -hmm. and I was also a bit disillusioned after that because I realized we need more. So we need more than just the high-level policy setting and just talking. We need more than just micro-interventions at grassroots base. So I thought we need a bit more of structured, um, more impactful interventions. So that's when I started to look into you know, entrepreneurship and corporate entrepreneurship more. And then I realized, and I had worked with Allianz, a big corporation, while I did my undergrad stud studies. I think I worked two or three days a week, and I had been a consultant. So I already knew this is also a bit slow and not moving so fast. So that's mm -hmm. when I decided to go to McKinsey because I thought this is the place where you can speak to all these decision makers, where you can devise programs that can be implemented. But you're not at the grassroots level mm -hmm. because I saw the limitations of it. And one very simple example was in one of these programs in, in microfinance that I assessed the women started to get credits and then everybody buys a cow and then you, everybody sells the milk. But what happens if everybody sells milk? Yes. You know, what happens to the market price? Mm -hmm. And these kinds of things, so you needed to have a milk exchange. Mm -hmm. But then this takes, um, and, and maybe a more of a plant, a production plant to mm -hmm. you know, do something with the milk because it's more, you produce more than you can consume locally. And this takes capital. And this capital is not available if you only have like if the people the stakeholders everybody can only contribute a little bit sometimes it's not enough even if you pull everything so that I thought okay we need to have yeah stronger capitalistic interventions mm -hmm. you mentioned that one of the reasons for going into McKenzie was also having that decision power and creating that impact there um, what is it what is the definition of impact for you what does impact mean for you Well, I don't think it's... Mm, so impact, I think, is to make good use of every single resource that you put, like how to be resourceful, <laughs> mindful with resources that you put in. Yeah. When I put one hour of conversation 
like one hour of my lifetime into a conversation. I would love that it can travel further, yeah, mm -hmm. with others in joining in. So when I speak about impact, it's more about um, freedom to manifest what you want to manifest. And that's why, you know, I have always had the preference to work with CEOs and so on, because I know when people make the decisions there, mm. they make the decisions or when or work with investors, because when investors, when you have inspired somebody to do a big cost, like to invest into something, it's better be a person who does also have the authority and the money to funnel, like to make it work. Mm. And I've been always frustrated to spend my time working with people and inspire them, but then realize that due to the systemic position they are in in society and in their organization, even if they wanted to, they cannot move the needle. Yeah, and then it's a waste of my resources and their resources, and the two mm -hmm. of us are frustrated. So when I speak about impact, I mean like that when we create a project, we make sure we have the conditions and all the stakeholders involved that can then go and implement it once they agree that it's worthy of their time. Yeah, you mentioned that also in, in the past um, that you're very time conscious as well. You don't want to waste time. You don't. You want to really make sure that, as you said, you want to involve all stakeholders as well to make most use of the intellectual know-how in the room, let's say, in that sense, but also creating the most highest impact without wasting time or preventing of any kind of negative impact in the future. Did you learn that at McKenzie? That kind of being more precise, making most use of the resources, including all stakeholders, etc. Or were I you think, like this or for a long time beforehand? I think maybe two driving factors <laughs> for, for this. One is I, I grew up in Swabia, which <laughs> is a state in Germany that is known for being very um, resource oriented mm -hmm. right people will save up <laughs> a lot very economical okay <laughs> and it seems to be a virtue so already we grew up not liking waste and then secondly of course because i came from a family that did not have any resources mm -hmm. we did have to be very mindful of the resources of the very few resources that we had so that we can go on holidays together and so on so it's been part of my upbringing maybe to mm -hmm. think wisely about how do we use our resources and so <laughs> nice um you know that that chapter four you said it's about mckenzie um what followed afterwards chapter five so during mckenzie i realized one point in time it's too much work um <laughs> i cannot spend like 60 70 hours a week on things I'm not fully committed to. Mm -hmm. I realized at some point in time my yeah, my my meaning or my purpose in, in my life is not aligned a hundred percent with all of the projects. Some projects mm -hmm. were really beautiful and I felt like I'm writing history with the work I'm doing. It sounds like a bit <laughs> it, it sounds a bit um how do you say a bit fuzzy but I did feel like the work I'm doing every minute I'm investing makes sense because it's aligned with what I see important for society so we had these projects and I was very happy when I had them but then we had also projects where I was helping people to do work 
that I couldn't have cared less about. So it's not even that mm. it was not aligned with my values. It's just like I didn't care about it. And then I thought, what life is this when you spend like you know an entire week working very hard um, to make things happen, but then what would happen if you used that entire energy and efforts to drive something that you really care about? And I realized also I needed to skill up a little bit on the coaching emotional intelligence side because on the projects that I worked with, a lot of them were, you know, sometimes numbers are not enough to inspire people to make decisions. Sometimes you need to understand what are the barriers to to acting and a lot of this comes from understanding the human psyche mm -hmm. and so I realized okay I had a very good training in excel and numbers I had very good training in asking questions analytical questions and in stakeholder management but I did not have a very good understanding about myself and I did not have a very good understanding about others by because if you don't understand yourself very well it's very difficult to understand the other in a non-conceptual way was that also the beginning of going more into the mindfulness uh, path in your life more or less yes yeah. i quit my job without yeah. knowing what would come next and then i did a coaching exercise a, a coaching training for a few months every day i went to coaching school and learned to reflect on myself and yeah. learned uh, different techniques on how to ask questions and yeah, help people understand themselves better. Mm -hmm. um, that was more or less the, than the big, I mean, just thinking about chapters now, the, the well, one chapter maybe. closed from the McKenzie and then a new chapter kind of, also a life chapter started being yes more self-aware. No, but it already started while I was doing an MBA mm -hmm. that was during my time at McKinsey, I did my MBA in Singapore and I was very close to Southeast Asia and I was very close to Vietnam, to Thailand, um, to these countries that have adopted Buddhism. So I spent a lot of time exploring yoga and meditation, different traditions and just hanging out on the beach and thinking about what would be cool to do with my lifetime. And I partied a lot and I did not think too much about work. Mm -hmm. And this was where, when I realized, okay, how can life be when you're not working all the time? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and I really enjoyed having this freedom to travel. And it was very tough to get back to normal work after that, because you really start to question, what is a good life? What is a good life for you? And that is already when it started, but I really loved McKinsey. Mm -hmm. So I was very happy to go back just... At, some point in time I realized if I want to develop the other things in my life like meditation and coaching I do need more time and that doesn't go with the work schedule that I had as a management consultant you said meditation and time that means after that part after that life chapter of McKinsey you consciously created more space for yourself to explore yes give yourself kind of permission to explore more in meditation and Mindfulness. Yeah, you just you created, just created yeah. the space. I just yeah. went full time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you went back. You went back in, in Germany. Uh, you were then back in back in Germany after the MBA as well. And uh, yes, I went back to Munich again. Munich again. Yeah. Yes, 
And then... So how was that time then? Uh, when you say now chapter five, how, what happened in that chapter five then? When you created that kind of space? Well, I worked in a medical practice. Mm -hmm. So I really wanted to understand human psyche, but also from a neuro, um, neuroscientific side. So I worked in a medical practice that was focused on um, delivering neurofeedback training which is technology combined with gamification, combined with behavioral um, incentive setting. And it was very, very interesting because I learned how to read the EEGs, how to help people interact with their brain waves in the way that they can learn how to optimize self-regulation patterns. Yeah? Anything that we already do con unconsciously, we make it conscious and help people then interact with these things in a way that is helpful for them like slowing down or speeding up certain activities in in our phys physiological bodies and yeah i think i got i had a lot of time to be more creative so i started to write the book i started to write poetry i started to connect with a lot of people that i just didn't have time to connect with before mm -hmm and I had to learn how to live <laughs> again like a student you yes. know with very low budget because I was working in a startup again and how to actually be with myself without having a clear task to do you know just enjoying the mm -hmm. walking just enjoying my own company and just enjoying to take full responsibility of every action because nobody was telling me what to do mm. so I had to do everything for myself and I could not say this is because my my client said I should do or this is mm. because my project manager said I would do or this is because blah 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 there was no escape because I had all the freedom so I had to learn how to live up to all this freedom mm. I mean you touch on point touch point a very interesting aspect is for every entrepreneur as well you know usually we're waiting when we employed we're waiting for others to tell us what to do as an entrepreneur or if as you say you know when you're creating the space where you kind of you're making your own decisions um, you also have to learn that it's okay not to do something you know because yeah. we always like feel like when we don't do something we judge ourselves negatively you know we say not doing something is bad, but it's actually part of the recovering mindfulness reflection aspect, which many forget, right? So that's, that's something which, because when you mentioned about, you know, walking, that meditation, that mindset of being okay, of finding your own kind of tasks, it just gives you all the environment that you decide to slow down in a world where everything is kind of in a race. It's really tough. Yeah. You have to feel... <laughs> I had to learn to feel okay that all of a sudden during daytime I can go to a coffee place and I have don't really have a job and I can just enjoy. And drinking my coffee and making new connections with others. But in the first few months I felt very bad about it. I felt like I'm a bum. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like a failure to society because yes. all of a sudden... I don't know what to do. And but how? how did, why did you find that? Why did you find that you were a failure to society? You know, it's kind of very weird to not have a job. 
all of a sudden. Right? <laughs> You're like, yes. And then yes. not to go to work, not to tell everybody in the end, I achieved XYZ. Yes. And it just felt like, oh, something is off. And I don't know if I will ever get a job again. And yeah. um, it feels not appropriate. Mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, I think I adapted very fast to this. <laughs> I enjoyed it very much. So when you say you adapted very fast to that, um, what, what did you do and then um, shortly after, till today? What, what happened in the few years since then? Well, I got back to what I already did when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. To create and do projects that I find meaningful to do. Yes. I just had to stop a few years during my undergrads and during the time as a management consultant because I just didn't have time to do this. Mm-hmm. So I got back to, like, I created my own coaching program, mindful coaching with a different, um, like, with a framework, and now I'm helping people to become their own coaches. So this is one, the second thing I had the time to think about how I see education, how I want to contribute to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, to meet with people like you, you know, and to see where we can co-create and assemble our skills and make something nice out of it yes. together, right? I mean, I remember very well the first time I literally virtually met you on a Wednesday morning session, yeah. morning meditation session. Yeah, as, was, as you said, like was kind of a trigger during Corona as well in March, April, which kind of caused you to create this kind of month, you know, weekly Wednesday morning sessions, yeah. bring people together. I felt like Corona might give us depression and I thought, okay, maybe it's a good time for me to just contribute what I can, what I can offer, right? And what I can offer is creating meditation sessions because mm-hmm. I'm a trained meditation teacher. And then it's voluntary. So whoever wants to come can come and join in and just share time with each other. Yeah. So we can build our own community and not feel left alone. Mm-hmm. I, left, I lived alone. And for a few weeks, I could not meet anybody because you were not allowed to meet anybody outside of your household. And this is quite tough because (laughs) you're alone with yourself all the time. You cannot go and see anybody. You cannot really speak to anybody in person. And I thought, okay, if I already feel like this, Mm. I might not be alone. (laughs) You're never alone in life. Yes. I, I know you as a person who is trying to bring people together, but location-independent, international community, also through the language English. As a, you know, for example, the Wednesday morning meditation. Yeah. You consciously decided to do it in English. Um, of course, it's also a side effect to include community from around the world, because connect, uh, language connects as well. Did you always have the approach to bring people together, or people internationally together, rather than just on the local spot? I always Location had a lot independent, of, yeah, across the borders. You no, know, I always had a lot of international friends. Like I told you, I yeah. already traveled when I was a teenager. And also, I come from a migrant family. So anyway, we already had the language barriers and my some of my family members don't even speak German. 
So English seems to be the lingua franca. Yeah. When I go on your LinkedIn profile these days, um, I actually came across a combination of words I never heard from, heard of. Uh, you said, I'm building an international mindful blockchain and crypto economics. Um, mindful blockchain, can you tell us what is that actually? Um, or in other words, what are you doing? What are you striving right now? Well, <laughs> How are you spending your days? Well, this is something I haven't really reflected about so, because it's too new. I've only done this for a few months or a few weeks. Um, so I do think we need a wise use of technology. What I have realized is we create our technologies. Right? And when we are not mindful in what we're creating, we might set up systems just like the social media systems we have right now that compete for attention. We have created technology that tries to keep us on screen because by the economic system we have created that being on screen generates more revenue mm -hmm. to the companies. So I think it's also our responsibility to create technologies that actually serve our well-being. And I just recently got into the blockchain community because they um, have used blockchain to create something I have deeply cared about a lot of like for a long time, which is reducing inequity in the world. Like social entrepreneurship is all about that. My work with in the hip hop field was all about it. And then my work in in the business school was also about how do we how do we make capitalism serve humanity and nature rather than others serving capitalism and nature serving capitalism and so using the technology we created stakeholder ecosystems and with stakeholder is what i mean with that is involving like enabling every person like you and me and not only investors to be able to contribute to value creation to be able to invest into our projects that we care about because it's in the way capitalism is organized right now there's a lot of barriers for people to partake or participate in financial value creation in, in value creation that comes from capital and not from manual work from from labor mm -hmm. and so this is something i was very excited about and i wanted to bring in the mindfulness because i think it's a very new area mm -hmm. like bitcoin for example it exists only since 2009 so yes. it's only been 11 years and it's quite a nascent industry so there's a lot of room when something new emerges there's a lot of room to contribute and shape it and if we bring in the conscious awareness of thinking what technology are we uh, or how do we want to design the products and the services and the technology that we're creating in this new industry so that we take into consideration the needs of different stakeholders then you can have a lot of impact because once the industry is mature mm -hmm. then there's not much room to change it anymore so i do feel it's a responsibility yes to, to bring in <laughs> reflection and so on and help people guide guide people the developers and so on in creating the systems that serve humanity and helping people to think critically about the use of it.
Yes. And, yeah. uh, when I came across these two terms, like mindfulness, blockchain, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great combination as well. You know, people would not combine both words as well, necessarily, to that extent. I mean, I'm pretty sure that people who are working in blockchain would not com add the word mindfulness or mindful into their context of words. Not so necessarily, yes. And that's very important. People. Exactly, and that's very important to combine it, actually, as you do, are trying to find that benefit out of it, um, including yeah. mindfulness. I'm glad you're seeing it that way. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, in the past when I um, coached many startups also in blockchain, I would never have heard the word mindfulness or mindful elements in that kind of technology context. Because often we, you know, often... Especially when it comes to this kind of terms, people are in their bubble, in their kind of tunnel, tunnel view, and not seeing what's actually outside of the tunnel. And that's very, very, can be actually misleading or misinterpreting as well of the use and the potential of the technology as well, as you say, uh, rather than seeing the benefits of it as well. Um, you said chapter five started after McKinsey. Would you say it lasts till today? Yeah, I think currently. How would you call it? Pioneering a new economy. Pioneering. <laughs> Something like this. <laughs> Pioneering a new economy. You know, when we're talking about um, past chapters, I'm always very interested to know what is your next chapter in life. What would I see if in your book you write a teaser for the next life chapter, kind of a teaser, what's next, kind of a preview. What would I read in there? Building family and community, something like this. But I think I'm quite, I'm quite happy with the current chapter. It just started, <laughs> yeah. you know? <laughs> just started. <laughs> Can be a long, long chapter after all, exactly. I don't know, maybe I need to merge different chapters. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, in every very good book, in every book, more or less, actually, is a copyright section, you know, saying you should not copy that, you should not do that. Um, you have to ask the author. When you look back in your life, what advice would you give other young people to say, don't do exactly the same mistake I did. Don't copy that from me. Because that's not necessarily a nice I step in think, life. I don't know if this... Or are there any parts would you, when you look back and say, hmm, if you would advise a young person, say, try not to do that, what I've done. I can give you already an advice. What would it be? I typically don't like to give advice. I also think in life everything happens as it is supposed to happen. So even the not-so-nice experiences are good learning opportunities. So rather than saying, you should not do this or do that. Maybe I would encourage people to reflect and seek assistance in reflecting about things that have been challenges in life and so that you're not alone and you're not alone dealing with something. And you realize very fast that you're not the only person who's suffering from the same challenge. Mm -hmm. The moment you start sharing about your struggles, you realize, oh, other people have the same. So speak more, share more. Um, yes, share more, speak more, connect mm. more. I think, especially in our uh, world, 
we live in a, in a society where no one is literally sharing their deep feelings as well. Everyone is hiding, everyone wearing a mask, literally a mask, not just a <laughs> corona mask. Um, but everyone is also lying at, this, at themselves, more or less, you know, not giving themselves an opportunity to, to open up themselves, to learn more about themselves. Because when you open up yourselves, you actually learn more about yourself. By hiding, wearing the mask, you're preventing yourself learning more about yourself. Well, I think it should not be only on the individual, this burden of uncovering yourself. Mm -hmm. I think as a society, and society is made up of all of us, right? So single change makers. Yeah. We can create this society where it's the default to open up, yeah? where we invite people to open up, where it becomes normal. We just need to work a little bit and create these little um, hubs Yes. Where, where we can have this reality. And then people would join in. And the more people join into the movement, yeah. the more a standard does it become. Yeah. I draw back to that moment you said, um, at young age, you, you love to create the, the stage, the set, to invite your friends to put the role on. It's similar to like creating that environment where everyone feels welcome to share and be open-minded as well. Yeah. yeah. And that's very important. Yeah, create a safe, trustworthy environment. Because I think it's unrealistic to expect that each person will by themselves have enough strength and yes. courage to just drop their pants. Yes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it takes a lot of time and sometimes there's reasons why we cover up, why we have over the years built a protection shield. Mm -hmm. um, just going there and saying, no, you're doing something wrong. I think is not the the helpful approach that would inspire people of to join course. into the movement. Exactly. So yeah. Um, in the end, now I want um, I want to actually go back to the beginning when I hold your book in my hand. I want to know what would I read on the title as a title, and I see the illustration with the little girl. But what would be the book title of your life book? So there has been a title that I thought I would reserve for my father's biography, but I don't know if I will ever write it, so I will borrow it for my own biography, and it's called Coconuts Have Eyes. And it comes from a story that my father used to tell that when they were refugees on, the, on some Malaysian islands, somewhere on some small fisher islands, they had nothing, they slept in homemade, like self-made tents and so on, and under palm trees, and the coconuts would fall down all the time. And heavy coconut can kill people, but he said somehow, um, like in a miracle, nobody ever got killed through a coconut. So this is kind of the story behind coconuts have eyes, because apparently they, you know, they know where to fall. It's beautiful. Um... Where can the listeners learn more about you or learn more about what you're currently doing, what projects? Maybe my website would be a good address to start off with. What is the website? Yipworks.com. Right. I will put it also in the show notes. Um, so on that website, they see everything what you're currently doing in terms of projects, can participate, reach out to you. People can just <laughs> write me. I have so many projects going on at the same time. So just shoot me a message. And on LinkedIn, maybe, or on Telegram, and then we can connect, because I love to co-create. So. <laughs> um, last question. Um, 
people who follow you on Instagram, they know that you love clouds. <laughs> and um, it fascinates me when I follow you on Instagram. It always fascinates me what you interpret out of any shape you see in the sky. And it's kind of similar to what you just said, with you love co-creating, you love interpreting or create things out of something where no one would interpret or see something useful in it. Um, what did you see today in the clouds? Today? Today, yes. <laughs> I did not post any picture today. But exactly, I... that's the reason why I'm asking. What did you see today? So today there was a big cloud. It was very, very saturated. It was gray. But then the entire sky around it was blue, like deep blue. And I was really fascinated by the stark contrast of having this pregnant saturated gray cloud that looks like it's going to burst every moment but then all around everything seems to, to be so peaceful and perfect one of the last perfect summer days with sunshine yeah and i was just wondering what you know what is this life where you can have this sadness in yes. the dark cloud amidst this cloud at the sky that just seems to you know be endless and in blue and not caring about this one little cloud and yes. be be strong enough to to absorb whatever the cloud may bring yeah so this was kind of yeah. <laughs> my morning reflection did you see it too the cloud no not not that, that <laughs> but you know since i i follow you also on instagram and i know when you told me many times as the, the clouds i kind of you know came also i see that kind of a metaphor as you know Usually when we are depressed or when we are down, we always look down. Mm. But actually the sky is up, so we have to look up, kind of more on the positive side. And when you, as people will see when they follow you on Instagram, see actually a story or a life, another different life going up, uh, going on, on in the sky, that you see there is life in the clouds and it's passing by very quickly. You know, because clouds passing by very quickly. So it's kind of a metaphor to life that, you know, life is um, passing by very quickly if we don't capture the moment. And I think this is kind of something which came to my mind when I keep seeing your pictures also on Instagram on the clouds, that life is similar to like clouds. It's passing by very quickly, you know, mm -hmm. five minutes and the cloud is gone or a different shape yeah. and you miss the moment. It's also capturing the moment and you're looking up and not down, and that's actually very interesting. Oh, you can interpretation. Look down too, I saw though. that. <laughs> Unless you see clouds on the ground. Yes, I actually do that too. Yeah. I see, I look for heart shapes on wherever I go. That's and another. That's another Instagram account for <laughs> Do one project at a time. Great. Thank you so much. Yep, for your time. I know you have to go now. Um, thanks for taking the time on a Friday evening. I uh, hope to see a lot of new projects from you as well and the co-creation projects. Yes. And uh, how, how are you feeling now? I feel very um, blessed to have had the opportunity to share about or to reflect about my life thanks to your guidance and thanks to your work. And I hope that you can make a really, create a really beautiful tool like coaching tool out of this life book conversations that we're having right now because 
it helps me reflect and it helps me connect and integrate parts of my life chapters that I had totally forgotten about. And it feels very fulfilling, fulfilling in the literally. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for for your time. And um, yeah, looking forward, hopefully to see your book at some point in the future. (laughs) Coconuts have eyes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. Thanks. Very inspiring, right? So if you want to learn more about Yip and reach out to her, you can find her on LinkedIn and Instagram. The links are in the show notes as well. Hope you stay healthy and well. Make the most of your time. I see you next time for the next episode. Just in the meantime, never give up. Always look up.